Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is Professor Brian Kaplan, who is a professor of economics at George Mason University and the author of several books, uh, the latest of which is Open Borders, The Science and Ethics of Immigration, uh, which is going to be the topic of the program today. So, Brian, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So the book is uh, it's interesting. It's, it's a bestseller. The format of it is, I guess, what they used to call a, a comic book or graphic novel. Do they still call it a graphic novel if it's nonfiction? Yeah, so people call it a nonfiction graphic novel. <laughs> All right, okay. And you have a co-author who is the illustrator, Zach Wienersmith. Wienersmith, yep. Wienersmith, okay. Who does the pretty popular online comic uh, Saturday morning breakfast serial. Pretty popular. Make that phenomenally popular. <laughs> <laughs> Well, well, yeah, I mean, it's not it's not like family circus popular or anything. Yeah, people actually like Zach's stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's a fun book. It's lighthearted. There are no superheroes, uh, per se, although there is, I guess, like an action movie hero guy who comes in and tries to say various things. There's also a lot of serious discussion of all sorts of issues involving immigration. So I think I think what would make most sense is... For you, just take a couple minutes to lay out the the basic case for open borders, and then we can go through some of the common uh, objections. Because I imagine, you know, it's obviously it's not a popular position, uh, as I'm sure you're aware. So I, I think a lot of folks will have different objections that you do address in the book. All right. So uh, as you said, the book's called Open Borders, and by that I just mean a immigration policy where. Unless you belong in jail, anyone can live and work anywhere on earth they want. So in terms of the case for this, I start off just by saying that immigration is the kind of thing that you would need to have a reason to not allow. Right? So you know, if you could just let one person in from a refugee camp and they could come to the U.S. and have a good life, it would be very odd to say no anyway. So I say there's just, there is a presumption in favor of it. And then I just try to think of all the reasons why you wouldn't want to actually allow people to live and work where they want, even though that seems like on the surface would be a wonderful thing to do, right? And then in the book, I go over the main complaints. And in the process, I often say that not only are the complaints wrong, but are the opposite of the truth. So the big economic argument that I address is, you know, what would this cause poverty? And what I say is actually far from causing poverty the whole reason why immigration happens generally is that people want to move from places where their productivity is low to places where their productivity is high. That's why they're able to get more money in Florida than in Haiti is because their productivity is higher in Florida. And what this means is that the main economic effect of immigration restrictions is just to impoverish the world by trapping human talent in places where productivity is low. So I say far from actually causing poverty, the real result of a freer immigration or open border, of course, open borders would be to have a large increase in the production of mankind. So, and as I say in the book, if, you know, a standard estimate is something in the ballpark of doubling the production of the world, 
where people sometimes say, you know, doubling world GDP, although technically it's it's a gross world product, GWP, that you would be doubling, right? And then there's the question of, all right, fine, we can if we increase production all this much, how does it divide, get, divide it up? And I say that it's complicated, but we have a general historical pattern where anytime there's a large increase in, in the total production of the world, the benefits are very widely shared. You know, the Industrial Revolution didn't primarily help factory owners and the internet didn't primarily help programmers and so on, but rather the benefits wind up being greatly enjoyed. So the panel in the book where I say, you know, open borders is not trickle down economics, it's Niagara, Niagara Falls economics. When you have a, a giant outpouring of productivity, almost everyone gains. Although, of course, there's always gonna be someone that is disappointed by, by what happened. And then after I go over this basic economic case of saying, you know, not only would it not be bad, it would be the best policy reform anyone's got on the table. Then I go over a lot of the complaints. I talk about possible fiscal costs with a welfare state, talk about effects on culture, talk about effects on politics. But uh, in the end, I just say that it looks like a greatly underrated idea. Yeah, so let's let's go through some of those. You know, you mentioned obviously. I would say that immigration, and, and I guess the main focus when you talk about open borders and the benefits of open borders is people coming from poor countries to rich countries. Although, as you note in the book, uh, there's not open. But we don't have open borders with Canada. Right, right. We don't have open borders for high skilled workers. You know, even if you're Albert Einstein, this whole process to get in. Right. So, you know, obviously it's easy to see how that would be a big benefit to the immigrants themselves. Uh, but I think there is a concern about, you know, what is the effect going to be on the on the natives, uh, particularly on, you know, maybe natives that don't have as much skills or on the, the lower end of the income or education bracket. If you have a lot of people moving here, isn't that going to drive down the way, wages of low-skilled or native workers and kind of, you know, even if it's good overall because it really, really helps the immigrants, it's not so good for them. Uh, right. So there's sort of two versions to this. One of them says that it's good for the immigrants and it's good for a large majority of Americans, but then there's some small group of Americans that lose. All right. So that's much more reasonable. Uh, the idea that all the gains go to the immigrants or almost all of them is pretty crazy, again, just because we're talking about something like a doubling of the production of the world. So as to how a lot of that isn't going to ultimately wind up in the hands of natives is very hard to see. Uh, in terms of effect on natives, you know, what I say is you, know, you really have to think about the net effect because on the one hand, it's true, there's competition from immigrants for the jobs that you do. On the other hand, there's also immigrants that, that are doing other kinds of things that where you are their customer rather than your competitor. So like I say in the book, uh, you know, the immigration of PhD economists uh, into the U.S. is bad for me, right? But the immigration of people who make ethnic food restaurants is great for me because they just aren't competing with me in the job market. And you have to think about this for every group. So, again, you know, if you are working in construction, then maybe immigrant construction workers aren't good for you, but you still benefit from the fact that there's a lot of immigrants who don't work in construction who are going to need homes, and that increases the demand for your services. So, anyway... Uh, you know, there's been a good amount of research that's been, done on, that's been done on this. And once you accept the fact that even that even the low skilled immigrants and low skilled foreigners are not don't have the same skills, especially low skilled Americans would still have fluent English, then 
research generally says that even groups like native high school dropouts are, are going to be you know, richer as a result of higher immigration. And really the main group that we want that people wind up thinking loses from immigration is just the last wave of immigrants because their skills are really close to those of the new arrivals. Although, you know, interestingly that, you know, usually the most uh, people most in favor of allowing more immigration are recent immigrants. You know, and it's, you know, partly it's just because they've got compassion for people that are like them, but also because they want to get their friends and family in. So, you know, the people that are materially the clearest losers are actually still on balance going to be gainers as long as they care about some people in their home country and want to get them over. So you just mentioned homes, and I think earlier you kind of teed this up saying that the typical flow is that people move away from low productivity to higher productivity. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's generally true, but we had Kevin Erdman from Mercatus on the show a few months back, and he was making the point that uh, that during the uh, the great housing crisis and the great recession, the, you actually saw something op- the, the opposite of that happening, where people were moving from high productivity places like California um, to to lower housing. Won't uh, an influx of immigrants put greater pressure on uh, the affordability of housing? Yeah, yeah, so that's a great question, and this is actually something else I'm thinking of writing a book on. So. It's you know, absolutely true that normally people move from places where wages are low to places where wages are high, right? And the wages are different because their productivity is different. But housing regulation in the richest parts of the U.S. has gotten so severe that you now actually can profit by moving away from high wage areas into cheap housing areas. Now, the you know, if the U.S. was a country where everywhere actually had extremely expensive housing, then I'd say the main effect of open borders would just be that not too many immigrants would want to come because they say, well, I don't really gain very much from this because I have, the rents are so high that the higher wages don't make it up to me. Uh, but fortunately, the U.S. does not have the same housing policies in the entire country. It's very much a matter of state and local regulation. So there's still a lot of areas in the U.S. where there is, where it's easy and cheap to build more housing in places like Texas. And while Texas may have lower productivity than San Francisco or New York City, it still has way higher productivity than Mexico or Haiti or any place like that. And so while it's true that we could get even more gain out of immigration if we had cheaper housing prices and allowed people to build more, still there's enormous gain remaining on the table. Uh, in terms of you know, would immigrants actually make the this housing problem worse? Uh, so yeah, they're going to go and increase demand in different places, although primarily they're going to increase demand in places where housing is currently cheap. And where in particular, they're going to increase demand in places where you can just build a lot more housing without having to pay a lot, uh, having to pay a lot much higher costs. So again, places like Texas, where the government will just allow you to build uh, lots of skyscrapers and build into the desert, whereas, you know, of course, in San Francisco and New York City, that would be like pulling teeth. Let's talk a little bit about the fiscal impact, because one thing that people say is, okay, it, it, we had basically free immigration back in the 19th century in the United States, uh, but we didn't have a, a welfare state back then. The government was a lot smaller. And now if you have what would be, I think, disproportionately low-skilled immigrant population that was really large, wouldn't that impose a lot of uh, high fiscal burdens on the, uh, you know, the host society or, or, or whatever you want to call it? Right. So the answer to that is a definite maybe. 
this is a question of looking over the numbers very carefully and seeing exactly what the net cost is going to be. You're right that the bigger the welfare state, then all else equal, that means that it is more likely that especially low-skilled immigrants will use more services than they pay in taxes. But there are numerous other complications to this. So starting with just the age of the immigrants. So what, how old are they when, they when they arrive? Because so much of the U.S. welfare state is about helping the old rather than the poor. So if you're getting poor young immigrants, then the math, again, is complicated. And you've got to look that over. Uh, you know, another big issue is a lot of services are what economists call non-rival, where the cost doesn't depend on population, or at least doesn't depend very much on population. So, you know, like, as I often ask, if we had a giant baby boom, 30 million new babies, would anyone say, let's expand the nuclear arsenal to protect them? <laughs> very unlikely. That wouldn't make a lot of sense because you can protect those new babies just as well with what we've got. Uh, so, and, and then, of course, you need to th consider things like, well, will the immigrants be having kids? When will they be having kids? Uh so anyway, um, what I do in this part of the book is I try to do a very thorough search of the boring quantitative work that people have done on these questions, taking into account all these complexities. And I rely most heavily upon this recent National Academy of Sciences report, which is very high quality, very carefully done. And the punchline of this report is, first of all, the immigrants the U.S. currently gets are a net fiscal positive. That means that when you factor in everything, then immigrants are actually paying more in taxes than they're spending in services. And then secondly, when you go and break it down by the skill of the immigrants, what you see is that even low-skilled immigrants are actually a good deal for U.S. taxpayers as long as they're not old. So low-skilled elderly people are currently a net burden with the system. But overall, this problem, just given the way the numbers work out, uh, is actually at minimum it's fine. And overall, it looks like it's a good thing. Um, now, you know, you do get a bigger positive for high sc higher skilled immigrants and you have to choose between high and low skilled, then taxpayers would be better off high skilled. I mean, the whole thesis of my book is we don't have to choose. We can have both. And but young immigrants do get old, though, right? Ah, yes. But here is the key fact of all finance. A debt delayed is a smaller debt than a debt that is not delayed. So, I mean, really what this is saying is that, you know, if you factor in the fact uh, factor in the fact that the uh, young immigrant isn't going to be getting these benefits until he's much older, then that makes the co the fiscal cost or the burden of those much lower. In the same way that if you owe me a thousand dollars in fifty years, you don't really have to get a thousand dollars together to pay me. You just put say two hundred dollars in the bank and let it grow over that time. And so that's the way that these numbers wind up coming out very favorably. So again, it's not a pyramid scheme to say that if I delay paying people, I, it will cost me less. It really is a fundamental of accounting. So one question that I have, which uh, maybe this gets into a little bit of technical stuff, but you know, the, the National Academy of Sciences study and some of the other studies that, that look at the economic effects, to what extent is that robust to the, to the level of immigration? And what I mean is, you know, right now, as you say, immigration, probably overall a, a net positive. But if you had open borders, presumably the number of immigrants to the United States would increase, uh, you know, perhaps by an order of magnitude or more. Mm -hmm. Are the kind of calculations that we do now really applicable to such a different situation, right? Because, I mean, you noted the people who are harmed the most by immigration are the prior wave of immigrants. And so presumably, 
you know, if if you have a a small number of low skilled immigrants, they're competing against each other, but and so that maybe they're not a huge fiscal burden, you know, because they can still kind of make it. Uh, but if you had, say, you know, 100 million, 150 million, wouldn't that potentially drive down their wages to an extent that it, it could be a, a major burden? Yeah, so that's a fantastic and wise question. So, yeah, so all the social scientists can study is what's really happened, right? So if all that's really happened happens within a narrow range, then it does make sense to have some modesty and uncertainty about what would happen far outside of that range. Uh, at the same time, though, you can try to figure out what are the things that would be very different in the new scenario. So, again, like one thing that would be very different likely under open borders is that we'd get a lot more low-skilled immigrants because right now it's so hard for them to get in. So that's why you can go and take a look at existing estimates of what is the cost of other low-skilled immigrants. Now, once you start getting further away and saying, okay, yes, but what about these further effects like what's going to happen to the those wages of those groups and then what will happen to the payments they receive? But then you have to, have to also add in, right, so what are, how would welfare policy change, right? So, you know, these are all things where it would be great if people would do them, but I would say that as far as I know, no one has actually done these more complicated estimates. Uh, the main thing I would just say is that once you start listing the factors that you would need to adjust, it's far from clear that the more extreme scenario would be more pessimistic. You know, just in terms of, you know, you know, obvious scenarios are ones where you wind up limiting eligibility of new immigrants for benefits for a longer time, which tips the scales the other way. Um, and then, you, have, you know, furthermore, just this general fact that we should expect a large rise in the overall productivity means that we just have a lot more to play around with in terms of the budget. So there's that too. But yeah, so, you know, totally right that the most reliable bedrock for, that we can use is based upon what we currently see. Now, the other thing you can do is you can go and try to look at incidents where there were large differences that happen, which are rare, but they do occur. So things like what happens when you have a mass influx of Soviet Jews in Israel, right? right? And even there, um, you know, researchers have generally found that it's hard to see you know, a lasting effect of that immigrants on native wages, for example. So you know, over, overall, I would say things look very good, but... Yes, of course, anytime you get far from what you've seen, then you should have reduced confidence. And actually, you know, in the book, I say this is the single best argument against what I'm saying. It's just the precautionary principle. It's a radical change and radical changes generally work out badly. So we should be nervous. Uh, but I, I say there is a big difference between what I'm, do what I'm doing and what most people advocate radical change do, which is I'm trying to do a lot of homework in advance and really think through all the complaints in a fair-minded way and, and just not get angry at people so people feel comfortable voicing their concerns. So, you know, like standard radical thing is to denounce anyone who criticizes them as being an evil apologist for the status quo. And I really just try to not do that. And I just say, look, we, you know, we have such large estimated gains. We just have a huge margin of error. I haven't followed this closely, but I understand that uh, the Trump administration is is now considering proposals that would uh, limit any benefits to immigrants. Can you speak to that a little bit? And how does that fit in with your ideas on, on open borders? Right. So in Clinton's Welfare Reform Act, they did put in limits on the government benefits that immigrants get. Basically, I think you know, like, for the federal government to fund them, you've got to wait at least five years generally although state governments are allowed to make up the difference if they want. So I haven't been following exactly what Trump's changes are. It would be hard to do too much change by executive order. I think most of this stuff is locked in by the legislation. Although I do talk about in the book how 
you know, the idea that you can't limit benefits to immigrants is just crazy because we already do limit benefits to immigrants. So, yeah, I mean, one, one thing I say about these fiscal effects, if you are worried rather than not letting people in, how about just changing the way the benefits are handed out so that you can have great confidence that immigrants will not be a burden on natives? Now, you know, I, often people get very upset when I, when I say this and they say this is totally unrealistic. There's no way that we can do this. We're just stuck with the system. All we can do is try to get immigration down. And I, I say, look, you know, like, you know, if you have if you know, this is a, if you're upset about the amount of benefits that immigrants are currently able to get, then you could either go and make this massive effort to change immigration policy, which has not and there's no been no fundamental change in U.S. immigration policy for 50 years plus. Or you could go and try to do a more narrowly targeted effort to just limit the eligibility of immigrants for benefits. And that way, I think you can have a story that has much broader appeal where you can say, look, we're not against immigrants. We love immigrants, but we don't think it's fair that natives are burdened by them. And so we just want to go and tighten up some of the loopholes whereby someone could come here and then just go on welfare. And again, when people say that's not realistic, I'd say, why is it? that seems a lot more realistic than getting a fundamental change in U.S. immigration law, which hasn't happened for 50 years. So don't see why people are so quick to dismiss it. Just right. put that energy that you've got into something constructive instead of just trying to get to, you know, as I say, you know, kick him out and keep him out. In a prior episode, I believe it may have been the episode where we had Raihan Salam on, we discussed some ideas for immigration policy. And one of the crazy ideas that was kicked around, I believe we called it the Neely plan, <laughs> um, was something along the lines of having uh, immigrants essentially pay a bond uh, or something akin to that um, at the time that they enter the United States. Josiah, do you recall that conversation? Yeah, I do. And uh, so in the book, uh, one of the things that I like about it is that you have a section on uh, kind of fallback positions of people yeah, who are not. Keyhole solutions. Keyhole yeah, solutions. you call them keyhole solutions, I guess, for the like keyhole surgery, where instead of if they need to do surgery, instead of uh, like slicing open your entire belly, they put like do like a tiny, a small as incision possible. As you know, one of the, and one of the things that I've often said about immigration is, you know, if we're worried about fiscal effects or other things like that is in the same way that if you have a popular nightclub that people want to get into, you know, too many people want to get into the way you manage that is you have a cover charge. And so America is a popular destination. Maybe we should have a, a cover charge or some sort of, you know, tax differential for natives uh, to, to make it more politically palatable and, and deal with some of the, um, some of the, uh, you know, the negatives there. This is also my solution for uh, NIMBYism for housing, which I think is kind of a related issue in a lot of ways. That, oh, yeah. You know, the problem is since the current residents are the only ones who get to vote, you know, they are not as willing to approve development or, or things to increase, uh, you know, that might increase like traffic or other things. And the urbanist community, I think, very often can be kind of like, shrill and moralistic about, you know, this is morally wrong. People should, you know, they should allow things to do it. But you are kind of butting up against, you know, a self-interest there that like the current residents are the ones who vote. Right. And so it's always it seemed to me that like in the same way, well, just just say that the more people who move to the city, people who have been there longer get lower tax rates, you know, or something like that. Uh, and so I, I believe in your book, you you address a similar sort of thing about open borders and immigration. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that immigrants can come to once they post a bond and, you know, $25,000 or $50,000, honestly, I would say I think that takes us 90% of the way to open borders. 
because you know at first you might say well how are poor people you know, from, you know, from you know, haiti going to pay anything like that and you know, of course if they have to save it up themselves then they'll never be able to do it but the thing is is once the this is all totally legal and above board then we have every reason to think that employers and lenders are going to be all over this so if you can go and get someone into the u.s and they're going to make an extra half million over their lifetime it is a really good deal to go and lend them a hundred thousand dollars and then go in, and then they come here and they're able to pay you back quite easily once they make it so i mean with credit markets i would say even quite high bonds would actually be affordable for very poor people in other countries now i will say you know like you know i still don't think that it's the best approach but uh, you know, I would still say that it takes you very far towards open borders because it's not really going to lock people out just because they don't have the money because there'll be people here who are happy to lend them the money. So, so yeah, I think that would be a, like a big improvement over the status quo. And even if you just think that poor people can't scrape together this kind of money, even now, people will in poor countries will come up with many thousands of dollars to get human smugglers to take them over the border. And if you can imagine a world where that money gets you in safely for sure, instead of with grave danger, with great uncertainty, then I think it's pretty clear that this would be a big improvement over the status quo. Yeah. And we're, I mean, this is all, this is all great. It's all very kind of wonky. We're, I think all three of us are kind of free market guys. And so this is, we, we enjoy this type of, you know, discussion, but if you listen to the president, you go, you know, you hear from his rallies. I don't think this is the type of conversation that the president or his supporters are having. I don't think that this is, you know, what emotionally connects. And I think what, you know, what they're focused on is more issues like crime and isn't, you know, isn't protecting the borders and protecting the citizens from criminals actually something the federal government should be doing compared to so many other things that the federal government probably should not be doing. Right. Of course, you can protect people from crime while still allowing lots of immigrants. So it's just normal policing. But the main issue that I talk about in the book is just sort of let's go and look at the numbers, because the fact that you can find a news story about a horrific immigrant murderer doesn't show you that immigrants are crime prone any more than a, a, a story about a redheaded killer shows that redheads are dangerous people that we need to do something about. So anyway... Uh, there's been a lot of work on this, and you know, usual view among people that know the data is that immigrants have lower crime rates than natives. So while you can always find immigrants doing bad things, this is no more reason for keeping them out than for people than, than for just you know, for keeping people in general out, or like or for some kind of preemptive detention or, any, or anything like that. Um, now you're right in terms of the of emotions, then. That's a lot of the reason why I wrote the book is just, is I just think that you like it's you really need a lot of effort to get over these emotions because unfortunately I think mean, you, know, you know human emotions are all against me right and you know like even on this crime thing you know you could go you could show that immigrant crime is way smaller than it even is it could be that immigrants have one percent the crime rate of natives and yet the emotionally appealing thing to say is if one immigrant does one bad thing to one American then we shouldn't have them keep them all out who cares. Right. And that's a very normal human reaction. Right. So, I mean, one thing you could do is just say, I give up and there's no point talking sense to human beings because they're crazy. Right. And I have some sympathy for this. Uh, my first book, The Myth of Rush, Rational Voter, is all about just how severe political rationality really is. Right. But you did write the book. Yes. Uh, <laughs> pardon? 
So it's, it's presumably yes. someone you expected someone to read it. Yes, yes. You know, I wrote it. You know, you know, I could have written it fatalistically and just said, "Yeah, this is why nothing's ever going to work." Although I look around and say, "Well, it's not that nothing ever works. You know, there are better and worse policies, and sometimes good ideas get through." So you really have to accept the great holder hurdles that you're up against, and then try to do your best to get around them if you're going to be in policy at all. You know, a lot of what I tried to do in Open Borders is I think that by combining words and pictures, it does help to, to, to diffuse a lot of the emotional resistance to immigration. I mean, and partly I'm just trying to combine the solid statistical work in science with a more favorable tone and with visuals that at least calm people down and get them to think about the statistics rather than just get angry. Right? You know, you know, especially in terms of tone, I tried to keep the book uh, very positive. So I didn't want it to be a typical political book where I'm denouncing people and calling people fools and knaves. I really wanted it to be a book where someone who strongly disagrees can feel like I'm talking to them like a human being. And so far, it seems like the reaction's been really good on that score. Let's turn to like kind of politics and, you know, cultural institutions thing. So, you know, Doug and I, we live in Texas. And one thing that it, particularly you hear a lot in Texas, uh, particularly in conservative circles, is a lot of complaints about immigrants from California, right? right? So there's a lot of people from California moving to Texas. And there is a concern that you hear a lot that are, are people from California, when they come here, going to bring their big government values and vote for candidates who will make Texas less successful and more like California even though they came here because we don't have an income, state income tax and, you know, you can build houses more easily, that sort of stuff. So that's, there's definitely a parallel to that uh, on the national scale where you have people who are coming from countries that don't work very well and uh, to countries that are still have their problems, uh, but better functioning. And there's a concern, well, I mean, it's not like if, since we we do have a democracy, they are allowed to affect things. Could they, if they have different values, undermine the institutions that actually created the prosperity that drew them there in the first place? Yeah, sure. So possible, absolutely possible. And that's why I've got a chapter where I just try to go over the evidence to see whether the, uh, the extent to which this fear is justified. In the case of Californians, I would wonder how many Texans would actually say, and that's why Californians shouldn't be allowed to move here, if they say, well... I don't like it, but I guess I just have to live with it. And they say, well, like, would it be better to keep them out? I don't know. Maybe Texans would say yes, but you know, it's the kind of thing that would really make you think if it's people from your own country that are moving. It's like, well, I guess we do get all these gains, so what's the net effect? In any case, uh, so taking a look at immigrants, I just spend a lot of time going over what are the typical views of immigrants. And the main conclusion is they are, a, you know, the first generation immigrants are a little bit different than natives. So they're a little bit more socially conservative and a little bit more economically liberal. Uh, and that's the opposite of where I come down. So yeah, I, I'm somewhat troubled by that. Although you know, the difference is, is quite marginal, uh, except for low-skilled immigrants where the differences are larger. And then I look at, all right, how about voter turnout? So there we see is that immigrants just have low turnout in general. And the low-skilled immigrants who are the ones whose views most concern me have super low turnout. So ultimately, I say, all right, so I'm not thrilled about this, but it's just not that big of a deal compared to the gains. And then there's the final point. What about the assimilation of their kids? How does that happen? And so, you know, the work there says that the kids of immigrants do assimilate very deeply to American political values. You know, to the point where usually the kids of immigrants think their parents' political views are just kind of embarrassing. 
right? So in the book, I've got a picture of an Italian grandma talking about how great Mussolini was to her U.S.-born granddaughter, and the daughter clearly thinks grandma's crazy. I think most immigrants can really relate to this. Uh, so there's that as well. So, you know, like, you know, I'd say that like out of all the arguments that I have chapters on, I think this is the most reasonable, but still it's one where it's just greatly overblown. It's not true the typical immigrant is Stalin or, or Stalinist or anything remotely in that ballpark, right? And, you know, the other thing I talk about, so the, like, you know, probably like the one that is clearest uh, is not on the issue views, but just on parties. So nowadays immigrants are very heavily democratic, but what's striking is it doesn't seem like it's so much because they actually agree with the issue views of the Demo- Democrats. So notably, you know, Indian Americans are probably the most socially conservative ethnicity in America, right? They have the very, like, I think the very highest rate of their kids being raised by two married parents that you can see from any group. Also now the richest group. So you think they'd be natural Republicans and yet they too are about 80% democratic, right? And if you're wondering what's going on, I say, if you look back to the period of Reagan, then back then immigrants were about evenly divided. So I do think a lot of this is not so much a matter of immigrants are natural Democrats as Republicans just don't make them feel welcome and are insulting to them. And so the immigrants know where they're not wanted. I think you really need to get a big change in the Republican Party towards trying to talk to immigrants like friends and win them over. Right. And if you think that can't happen, this has happened many times. So Catholics used to be solidly Democratic. Now religious Catholics would be very Republican. I mean, like you, like you expand your votes by talking to people that aren't, don't currently vote to you like they're human beings and trying to win them over and find common ground. So, you know, as I've told several other people, you know, like if I were a Republican strategist right now, I would be pushing to let in every Venezuelan who want, who, who can get here. And mm-hmm. then at the docks or at the airports, meeting them with representatives of the party saying, you know, we welcome you here. We're here to help you. And we knew and we as victims of socialism we, we we understand what happened to you and we want and we want to bring you into the party that's going to make sure this never happens in the u.s so you can imagine you're know, just creating a second group like a second group of cuban voters where venezuelans are loyal republicans right and i think this is totally doable uh it's just a matter of whether you've got the will to reach out to people that don't currently vote for you and befriend them and find common ground with them and you know, common ground between Republicans and Venezuelans is so clear. You know, if you just imagine a 10 years from now, if you've got three Venezuelan congressmen on, on, down in D.C. denouncing socialism and saying, you know, you know, when you Americans speak of socialism, let me say I've lived in this hell state and I will never allow my adopted country to fall prey to this. So you can just imagine some voices like that to yeah. go encounter the, so the, the new socialists that are popping up in Congress. I think that was a great future to imagine. But it's not going to happen unless Republicans get their act together and try and just realize, look, you know, immigrants are going to keep coming and we need to win them over and make them our friends. Yeah, it is interesting. If you look historically until fairly recently, the parties were not nearly as polarized on the immigration issue. Right. And you talk about like Venezuelan immigrants, but when you had the, the wave of immigrants from and refugees from Vietnam after the fall of Saigon. You can find a lot of very liberal California Democrats who were not happy about it and wanted to try and keep them out. And, you know, perhaps uh, one reason for that is the uh, justified fear that they were going to, you know, all vote Republican. Uh, 
which the Vietnamese community is actually one of the more Republican leaning immigrant groups uh, up, up, up to this day. Right. And especially the, the first generation ones, but right. the kids seem like they are switching over the Democrats. And again, you could just say that's the way the world works, or you could say maybe Republicans need to get better PR. Yeah. It, it seems kind of fickle in that you can just sort of a, a death spiral, I guess you might say, where parties become polarized on immigration. So the immigrants become polarized and they, they kind of reinforce each other. Yeah. I mean, that's, that seems to be where we are. I would just say that you know, these spirals, people do come out of them. So, you know, like go back to when almost all Catholics were Democrats. And to that point, if I were saying Republicans should reach out to Catholics and try to win them over, people would have said, yeah, you know, good, good advice, Mr. Professor Utopia or something like that. But, you know, this, this is just basics of marketing. You like, if you want to sell your product to new customers, you got to go and talk to people that don't currently buy your product. Of course. Let me ask kind of the same question from the, from the other side around, because when people talk about uh, immigrants changing, you know, political culture or whatnot, very often they focus on the changes that come from the immigrants themselves, you know, what are their values, but there also seems to be a kind of risk of, what's called backlash, where just the the presence of large numbers of immigrants could reorder, reorient politics around uh, issues of race and nationality and culture. I think we've seen this in in Europe and the United States in the last few years, particularly in Europe after the, the Syrian refugees. And then in America, of course, you've had the whole Trump phenomenon. So isn't that also another uh, potential risk of having a lot of immigrants is that the nature of politics and democracy is people are going to polarize over certain sorts of issues. Uh, that's inevitable. But some types of polarization are better than others. Polarization over kind of like national nationality, racial type stuff seems pretty bad. So it, isn't there a risk that high levels of immigration might, might provoke that? Right. So, of course, it's a risk. But you know, you know, here's my view on the rise of populist parties, uh, which you know, many people have said you know, immigration has caused them. And I say, well, look, if the populist parties, if what they're going to do is just reduce immigration, then I say, right, that, you know, that's bad. And then if the question is, all right, so could we have had more immigration if we had slowed it down? All right. And you say that's very unclear that that's true. Right. I mean, a lot of people have made these claims, but when you actually go and look at the numbers, so it's really true that there would have been more immigrants to Europe if they had been less welcoming. I don't know. It just seems uh, quite far-fetched. On the other end, if you said, all right, fine, it's not that the populist parties are going to, or that you know, the result of immigration is going to be, or more immigration will cause less immigration. It's just that we're going to get these populist jerks in office. In my view is the main bad thing about populists is their views on immigration. So that's the problem. You know, That's the real problem in my view. So as long as immigration remains than the fact that you have rude, boorish people that are in charge. I don't see what the great harm is. Um, you know, in terms of, you know, like, like racial polarization and so on, you know, so again, it's not great uh, as to, as long as it remains the atypical issue in a democracy, in a modern democracy where there's not much violence about it and it's just a lot of hot air, then I'd say, all right, well, there's a lot of other bad things we could be arguing about too. So, you know, ultimately, you know, the one concern I have is that, you know, the, is that you actually let in so many immigrants that ultimately few are allowed in because it lets anti-immigrant parties in charge. But other than that, I don't see what the big deal is. Well, so I, I guess I guess I have, you know, if we're talking about like extreme cases, 
Mm-hmm. Right now, I guess the foreign-born population of the U.S. is what is like fifteen percent, something like that. It's a, I think it's a little high, but yeah, that ballpark. Yeah, yeah, so somewhere in between 15 percent, I guess, which was yeah, also definitely over ten. Yeah, definitely over ten. So, but if you had open borders, you know, obviously that would go up. You could easily imagine a situation where the foreign-born population could be more than 50%, right? Yeah. And at that point, isn't there, you know, at that point, you, I think you start to get a risk of, well, let me put it this way, you know, in, in the short term, if you have people, you know, you're going to have a situation where a majority of the country isn't able to vote. And that creates, I think, maybe some noxious political pressures where you, you start to wonder, well, like there are countries in the world where the majority of the residents are immigrants, guest workers of different types, but they're not democracies, right? Right. And you do have, you know, you have other cases like Northern Ireland, say, or South Africa, where the in-charge group uh, is very demographically worried that they're going to be, they're going to lose power to the more populist group that doesn't have political power yet. And so they want to restrict freedom in all sorts of ways and, you know, kind of undermine the, the whole democratic system. I don't want to be alarmist about it, but we are talking about potentially a, a pretty radical change just in the numbers. And so I wonder, is there some risk that that could have some major effects on the institutions themselves? Yeah, so there is a risk. I don't think that it's severe. I mean, especially because remember, so like, like you're, you're talking about having people come over a longer time period. So you're not going to have a billion people showing up overnight just for logistical reasons alone. So, you know, the way that immigration usually works is that it snowballs. When you open up a border between two previously closed countries, first, you usually only get a trickle of people coming because people don't want to be the first person from their country to go to a totally new new place. But once those people get there, then normally there's some more people who feel safe because now they can go to Chinatown or Little Italy or whatever. And then over time, it does increase and increase and increase. Uh, which you know, I say means that in the long run you get the benefits, but you don't have the, the what we call people call swamping of just being overwhelmed all of a sudden. So again, when you're thinking about the foreign-born population rising to 50 percent, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be rising gradually, and the earlier earlier people get acculturated and their kids, of course, assimilate. So you know, like while we can imagine things getting really bad, I just don't think it's uh, we worry about it too much. And you know, cases like South Africa, you really have a case where You've got a white minority that just treats the, uh, the, the, the African population like a grave threat and an enemy. And yeah, then, of course, you can very easily get really bad blood. But this is not the way that immigration normally works. It's very unusual for people to treat immigrants like they are an enemy, right? Instead, normally, you know, personally, people reach out and, and immigrants go, get integrated into a new culture. And while you know, first-generation immigrants don't assimilate fully, they assimilate a good amount, and their kids assimilate almost entirely. So yeah, well, you know, like you can worry about it. And every now and then I hear people say, don't you worry about this? And yeah, of course I worry about it. I just think the probability is low, but it's still worth thinking about and you know, just you know, and trying to cover all your bases is a lot of what I try to do in the book. Okay, so final question, totally different topic. You are a big proponent of what you call betting your beliefs. So if someone makes a prediction that something's going to happen that you think is kind of out there, you will ask them, well, let's put let's put some money on it. Oh, yeah. And you have an amazing record. I don't believe you've ever lost one of these bets. 
That's right. I've got 19, I'm right. 19 out of 19. And, uh, and January 1st, um, I should be almost certainly be at 20 out of 20. Even somewhere for, I, there was a long time you had bet that no nation would leave the European Union by January 1st, 2020. And so for, for several years there, it seemed like, well, you know, it's, it's not looking good. And then just last month, they bumped back the, the date. So whatever happened to the end of January. So you're at least you're at least technically safe on that one. What's your secret? This Is this some sort of Faustian bargain that you've made where you won all the bets or what? Yeah, so that's a great question. So why is it that I have this betting track record? All right, so one story is just I'm super lucky, right? Uh, so I can't refute that. But I, there's a point when if you win 20 out of 20, luck starts to sound like a rather unfair story to me. You know, so a lot of it is that I focus on people just making hyperbolic, exaggerated claims and then trying to bring them down to the earth and say, all right, so what exactly would you be willing to bet on for that? And, you know, and I I also, you know, I focus on areas where I think I've got at least a good amount of knowledge. So, you know, I I usually bet on questions about economics or social or, or society or politics. So, yeah, I mean, I never make bets on what the stock market is going to do, anything like that. I just, I did have one price on the, what would happen to the price of gasoline over the course of a decade. It was near its all-time high, and I just bet that it would come down substantially. Uh, there again, I knew the research uh, saying that uh, petroleum prices are mean reverting, so I felt comfortable saying, look, if it's near the historic high, then it's just not going to stay this high for that long. Uh, right, but, you know, like, especially just like targeting people that are shooting their mouths off, making hyperbolic claims. They are my preferred victims. And then, you know, you know also just knowing the you know, long-run trends, that kind of thing, and like, what, what is it that typically happens? That's a big part of my strategy too, right? And, you know, then, you know, probably I've gotten a little lucky, so I'm definitely getting lucky with this uh, EU bet. So, you know, like, I'm not claiming that I foresaw that this would happen, but just after January 1st, 2020. Remember, I made this bet in 2008, so my, my, my crystal ball was not nearly that good. Uh, but at the same time, I did, you know, I did put in the, into the bet that a country would have to officially leave because I did anticipate that even if there was any kind of movement towards leaving, that there would be a whole series of bureaucratic delays and that kind of thing. And so that did pan out in the end and apparently it saved me. Yeah. All right. Well, very good. Our guest has been Professor Brian Kaplan. The book is Open Borders, available all over the place. Brian, thank you very much for joining the Urbane Cowboys. Oh, thank you very much. Oh, by the way, so I thought you were going to ask me if I'd be willing to bet on immigration. Oh. And I totally am. The, you know, like the, the big one that I'm really happy to bet on is that if you allow a lot more immigrants in from a poor country to rich country, that the combined GDP of the two countries will rise. Uh, so you have to go and be a lot more specific about that to make it bettable. But that is the thing that I would most like to bet on. So again, this is not saying that you get more people, you get more GDP. That's obvious. Rather, this is saying that if people move from a poor country to rich country, the combined GDP of the two countries go, goes up because you have moved people from a low productivity place to a high productivity one. I'm also happy to bet on any hyperbolic claims about there being massive immigrant crime or bloodbaths or civil war or anything like that. Um, a guy did try, did offer to bet me on civil war. Then it turned out that by his definition, Europe was already in civil war. Ah. And it's okay. Well, good thing that we worked this out because it just turns out that you use words in a way no other human does. So <laughs> good to know. Yeah. We, we talk about like betting on civil war. It reminds me of a quote from the Simpsons where Mr. Burns uh, is, it's the, they're leaving Homer 
in uh, like the cabin in the middle of the woods. It's like a parody of The Shining. And Mr. Burns says to Smithers, I tell you what, if we come back and everyone's murdered, I owe you a Coke. (laughs) 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 But... uh, yeah that's right yeah thank you very much for joining us and uh, no bets necessary all right awesome thanks a lot always a pleasure